to City Break Ideas, Episode 4. Another episode of five new ideas, places you perhaps haven't thought of visiting, perhaps always meant to go to, one way or another, just to jog your memory and make you think, would that be the place I'd like to go on one of my upcoming City Breaks? Got quite the mix this week. Got four ideas sent in from different listeners and one of my own that I've added on the end. I think it'd be fair to say we've gone from the big, brash, neon city right down to the smallest cathedral city in the UK. And apart from those two, three other cities which don't perhaps provide the full range, how could that be in five cities only, but certainly are all varied and individual. I hope that between them, the selection this week provides something for everyone. But before we get to any of them, just a little pause for a couple of messages which I enjoyed receiving in the last week or so. The first one comes from Donna on Twitter who wrote to say, Hi, love what you're doing. Well, that's nice, isn't it? I'd asked her to comment on her favourite cities, and back came the reply, My absolute favourite city is Berlin, as there's so, lots of O's, so much going on, and the history's so alive. I recently visited Barcelona too. That's a lovely place to experience the mix of Spanish and Catalan culture, and to eat pinchos. Oh, Budapest is amazing too. Such a vibrant and interesting city. Really cool bars. So I'll leave you guessing just for the moment as to which of those I picked to feature. But I'm going to read her sign-off message because I enjoyed that too. And it says, looking forward to starting your podcast when I'm back at work next week. I think that Donna's probably in the bracket of people who listen on their commute. And I think she'd probably been locked down for a few weeks. And is now set to get back to work. I like to think that one of the pluses of that will be the chance to get some podcast listening done and including City Breaks. I don't think Donna mentioned which series she was going to start with, but whichever one you picked, I hope you're enjoying it. And then the other message I really enjoyed receiving came from a 100% Sports podcast via Twitter. They kindly followed City Breaks, so I asked them for a recommendation. Which city would they suggest for listeners to enjoy? And they wrote back and said, Do you mean anywhere in the world? Where exactly are you based? We're from the US. I've only been to cities in the US. Don't know if that would help. Well, yes, of course. I'm very into broadening my horizons. Hoping, in fact, that the time will come when City Breaks does include some cities from other continents. Anyway, having been told that the world was their oyster, they messaged back, or rather one of them did, with a very short, to-the-point message which simply said, I liked Vegas. So stand by for my attempt to introduce Vegas to you in a few minutes' time. And thank you very much to 100 Sports Podcast for writing it. I like to think that at some point in the not-too-distant future, they'll be out there, across the pond, listening to this episode. Something else I came across this week which caught my attention was an article from Condé Nast called The World's 20 Best Cities for Architecture. So, of course, I couldn't resist having a look to see if any of the cities I've covered so far featured. And yes, two of them did. One was St. Petersburg, which they picked out as their example of Rococo architecture. Think large, beautiful buildings with curves, pale colours. I always think they look a little bit like fondant cakes. And certainly if you've seen photographs of St. Petersburg, you'll be able to picture canal-side buildings and palaces fitting that description. The other city they picked out, which I've covered, was Florence, which was their example of Renaissance architecture, which in Florence gives us such lovely buildings as the cathedral, or the Duomo, and churches like Santa Maria Novella. 
bit more symmetrical than the medieval architecture which it superseded, a bit more geometric in structure, columns, domes, quite mathematical. And reading the article set me thinking about the other cities which I've covered. What could you say about the architecture in them? Paris. I think the quintessential Parisian feel, building-wise, is those large, wide boulevards, the ones that Osna designed in the second half of the 19th century. Beautiful because they're regular, they're all the same number of stories. I think it's seven, with balconies on, I think it's the second and fifth floor. Those wrought ironwork decorations, the roofs sloping back at a particular angle, and giving so many streets in the city that lovely, elegant, well-designed sort of feel. Then I thought about Seville, where I suppose the defining feature is perhaps the Islamic influence, the pillars and the archways, those very particular colours that you get in the decorations, ochre and blue and green, the intricate carved decorations on some of the facades. Then there's Toulouse, well that's pink bricks isn't it really? Well, red bricks but pink in the sunshine, particularly at a certain time of the evening. And those mansions, known as the Hôtel Particulier, so individual houses, which the rich merchants who made so much money from discovering that you could make blue dye out of a plant called woad and sell it abroad. All of this in the 15th-16th century. And then they built themselves a splendid house to live in with the profits. That just leaves Munich of the cities I've covered. Munich, which doesn't feel so much like a mid- or northern German city, but a city with an Italian influence. Italian Baroque, noticeable particularly in the domes of the cathedral and in some of the colours of the facades. So all in all, it was a very interesting article that made me see the cities I know well in a slightly different light. All in all, they covered 20 different cities, each one being typical of a particular style of architecture. So just as an appetite wetter in case you don't have time to go and find the whole thing, There was an extract on Athens with its classical architecture, rather like, as the article put it, taking a step back to 400 BC, look round at the temples, the centuries-old columns, the sculptures of gods, all typified, perhaps, most of all, in the Parthenon. And Barcelona got a mention, too, as an example of modernism, Catalan modernism, as they called it, typified in the work of the 19th century architect Antoni Gaudi who, as you'll know if you've been to Barcelona, designed buildings that really looked like none other. Think ceramics, stained glass mosaics, undulating stonework, ironwork, all coming together in buildings such as his masterpiece, the cathedral, a Sagrada Familia, and very much on show too in a collection of buildings in the Parc Güell, one of the most visited tourist sites in the city. Okay then, let's move on to this week's City Break ideas. I'm going to start with Donna and one of the cities she suggested. In fact, I picked Budapest, which she described as being such a vibrant, interesting city with really cool bars. Again, something for everyone. So, Budapest, or more precisely, Buda, the hilly bit, and Pest, the flatter bit, one each side of the Danube, connected by the Chain Bridge. An interesting city geographically and culturally because it seems to border West and Eastern Europe. Austria to the West, but on the borders of the far reaches of the Eastern European countries. On that line in centuries gone by between the region dominated by the Ottoman Turks and the regions dominated by the Austrian Habsburgs. Almost at one point in its history really Vienna's twin city. Think wide boulevards and horse and carriage rides. 
but also very much connected with communist Europe. When I lived in Vienna in the late 1970s, we were very aware that Budapest was not that far away, really, but part of a completely different regime, behind the Iron Curtain, feeling quite out of reach, really. I did actually pass through it on a train on the way back from Athens to Vienna, and I have vivid memories of reaching the Austrian border on the train at night, and of sitting there while armed guards stamped up and down and checked every carriage, shining their searchlights under the seats and up into the luggage racks, fearing, I think, that somebody would be trying to escape to the West. But that was then, and this is now. So, what can you see in Budapest? There's certainly a list of some of the obvious things, a castle, a national art gallery, state opera house, theatres, including a puppet theatre. But the thing that struck me most from the photographs I've looked at and the descriptions I've read was the thermal baths. At least nine major ones, in fact, in the city, due to the fact that they've got an abundant supply of hot springs, gushing out lovely warm mineral-rich water. This has been the case for centuries, so there are baths from various eras. There are even remains of a bath built in Roman times something called the Thaumai Majoris, so presumably they had lots of baths and this was the big one. And you can still visit the ruins in the north of the city today. Also still existent, but still in working order, are baths built by the Ottomans, who invaded in the 16th century, built hammams, which have been in use ever since. If you want to look for those, names would include Rudas and Kirali. But perhaps the most lavish baths that you can visit today are the ones that date from Budapest's golden years, so right at the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th. I'm willing to have a go at pronouncing the names of the two best-known ones, but I must apologise in advance because I'm sure they're bound to be wrong. Anyway, there's one complex called Sitcheni, which consists of 15 indoor pools, gloriously decorated with lovely mosaic patterns, and having also a big outdoor pool. If you've seen pictures of people in the winter months in a steaming outdoor pool, that was probably here. Built in 1918 and seen today as an Art Nouveau landmark. Gorgeous indoor pools, turquoise ceramics all over the walls, lots of sunshine streaming in through the windows. Extremely photogenic. So there are a couple of ideas for a very Budapest-type experience. And the other thing that I was very struck by and hadn't heard of, is something called the Shoes Memorial, built on the riverbank, just along from the Parliament building, as a memorial. It's a sculpture, put up in 2005, which takes the form of a collection of bronze shoes, and put there as a memorial to the city's Jews, many of whom were executed in this very spot on the riverbank in 1944 and 1945. It's known that they were told to line up here, remove their shoes and face the river, and then they were shot, so that their bodies were carried away by the river and their shoes were resold on the black market. On a website called BudapestDanube.com, I found the following description about what exactly this represents. Quote, the sculpture represents the moment just after death, when the shoes were still there, men's, women's, children's, some nicer, some worn down, tattered, here and there a missing shoelace, or even half a pair, all different, yet all connected. So, moving on from Budapest to somewhere very different, a suggestion sent in by the people who run the Goat Podcast. Goat Podcast, if you're not familiar with it, is a podcast series run by 
some sports journalists, in which their stated aim is to discuss the greatest figures in sport. So I guess given that, their suggestion isn't really very surprising. But in case I missed the point, they spelt it out. Liverpool, they said, home of the Beatles and world champions, Liverpool FC. I was glad to get that as a suggestion, because I've got half a dozen UK cities on my list. As I keep saying, Bath is coming quite soon, but there are two or three others I want to do in the next year or two. But I had not thought of Liverpool. But actually, yes, why not? What a good idea. So, I'm going to go through a couple of the things. In fact, the two things that they specifically mentioned, the Beatles and Liverpool FC, and just point you towards the sort of things you might get up to if either or indeed both of those are your interests and you decide to go for a city break in Liverpool. So, Beatles-wise, there's a museum in the Albert Dock called The Beatles Story. It's got recreations of some of the important places in the lives of the Beatles, such as the Cavern Club and Abbey Road Studios. got lots of memorabilia. The website I checked promised us John Lennon's spectacles and George Harrison's first guitar, and lots of photos, films, etc. Of course, you can go out and about in the city as well and see some of the places they wrote about. Strawberry Fields, for example, which was a children's home in the days when John Lennon was a child in the city, a place, in fact, where he used to play in the grounds, and which became world-famous when the band released the single Strawberry Fields Forever, became a place that tourists would seek out, and which more recently, 2019, I think, has been open to the public, so there's an exhibition there on the history. You can also drift by Penny Lane, you can go to the Cavern Club, although that doesn't, I don't think, look as it did. It's been rebuilt, but that's the place where they made their debut in 1961. You can even visit the house in which Paul McCartney grew up, the place where they wrote and rehearsed lots of their early songs, and which is now open to the public. More Beatles memorabilia on show, more photos, more nostalgia. If it's the football which interests you, then you can go to Liverpool FC Stadium, you can go on a stadium tour, which promises all kinds of exciting things, looking down on the pitch from the top level of the main stand, for example. Yes, I'm quoting. You can visit the dressing rooms. You can, wait for it, touch the This is Anfield sign. And again, a quote from the publicity. You can take a spine-tingled walk down the player's tunnel. If you want even more, you can attend what they call a Legends Q&A, where they will get a legend, which in this case means a person, in fact means an ex-Liverpool footballer, who will come and host a session, tell you some memories and some anecdotes, answer your questions, let you have your photograph taken with them, sign autographs, etc. And then, of course, you also get the chance to go on the stadium tour. If you don't want to do anything quite so organised, there is the Liverpool FC Story Museum, full of trophies and photographs, and something called the Stephen Gerrard Collection, and no fewer than six European Cups. So that's Footballing Liverpool, and if you're wondering what, apart from the Beatles and the football, there might be to do in the city, well, there are other museums to visit. There's a branch of the Tate Gallery, for a start, and then there are at least three other museums connected to the city's maritime history. One is actually called the Maritime Museum, where the exhibitions centre particularly on the story of the many thousands of emigrants who left via the Mersey for North America in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But actually it goes further back than that, so it's about the history of seafaring in Liverpool from the 13th century onwards, at which point it was a fishing port, and you can see model ships and 
hear the stories of famous ships with which the city is connected, like the Titanic and the Lusitania. Then there's what sounds like a very interesting museum called the Border Force National Museum, telling the story of smuggling and contraband from the 1700s to the present day. And finally, and very topically, the International Slavery Museum. Because, because of its geographical position, facing west, Liverpool was a place where many 18th century slave ships were repaired and refitted, and from where they set out again on those journeys that we've all been talking about so much very recently. And quite right too. So, where to after the leaving of Liverpool? Well, the third suggestion this week comes from Irina Hans, who suggests a city which I've always wondered about, but never visited, and which I was very glad to have brought to my attention again, and that is Potsdam. I've always known of it as somewhere just outside Berlin that one day I would visit, because there's a lovely chateau there called the Sans Souci. But what I didn't realise is actually how sizable it is, 150,000 inhabitants or so. So very much a place in its own right and not, as I had suspected, a bit more of a suburb of Berlin, really. And when you consider that I have been a German teacher, I really ought to be less ignorant. Anyway, Irina describes it as being a place with a bundle of history attached to it. Beautiful cobblestone streets, lakes and rivers all around, very well known for its Christmas markets, and indeed its annual tulip festival, because as part of the city is known as the Dutch Quarter, probably best known to most tourists because of the Chateau Sans Souci, which I'll come back to in a minute, or possibly for historians because of the Potsdam Conference, also we'll come back to that in a minute, but somewhere that's really not just living in the past from the sound of it. Irina describes it as having a vibrant culture scene, for example there's a theatre on a boat, there's a whole island dedicated to friendship. It's a sort of mix, she says, of gentrification and an alternative lifestyle. So you can, for example, rent a houseboat. It's a trendy sort of place where German celebrities choose to live. I delved a tiny little bit into the history and found a description of it in, I think it was the Top Ten Guide, as, quote, a splendid centre of European enlightenment. And that reputation rests particularly on the 18th century, which was when the Sans Souci Palace was built. And for that, we have to thank the King Friedrich de Corsa, known as Frederick the Great in English, who was actually the longest reigning of the Hohenzollern kings, reigned for 46 years from 1740 onwards, and who reigned in Berlin, but who also wanted a beautiful palace built, somewhere outside the city, away from the pressures of being king, somewhere where he could lead a carefree existence, hence the name Sans Souci, which of course is the French for without a care. Classy sort of place, one visited, for example, by Johann Sebastian Bach, whose son was a court musician there. It's known that Bach played a little something with the king, and that he wrote something for the king, which he called a musical offering. The French writer and philosopher Voltaire went one better than visiting. He actually moved in, at the invitation of the king, we understand. And so it became a sort of centre of thought, a place where other leading philosophers would ship up to visit and discuss things. If you visit today, there's not just the castle to look at, but also the Schloss Park, the castle grounds, full of splendid things built for amusement by people like Frederick the Great, a Chinese tea house here, some Roman baths there, an orangerie, of course, and an amusement park going under the wonderful German name of Lustgarten. It isn't even as if Sans Souci is the only chateau in Potsdam because there's also Schloss Cecilienhof, 
best known today as the site of the Potsdam Conference, held in 1945, where the Allied powers, the US, Russia and Britain, met for several weeks to discuss what to do politically about Germany after its defeat. There's lots more to see, but I'm just going to highlight one more place that I think people will be particularly interested in, and that's the Babelsberg Film Park. Early German films were shot here, including some very famous ones, for example, The Blue Angel with Marlene Dietrich in it. Greta Garbo shot some films here. And it's still absolutely in use, so films like The Bourne Ultimatum and The Hunger Games were also made here. But it's not just a working film set, it's got an exhibition of A Hundred Years of Filmmaking, which you can visit. So then, Potsdam perhaps doesn't quite have the reputation it deserves. I think a lot of people probably do what I've done so many times, which is go to Berlin and think, oh, we'll have a day out or maybe a couple of days out in Potsdam and never actually quite make it, because in Berlin itself, of course, there's also so much to see and do. Berlin, I think, has got to be a city break city for a proper series at some point in the not-too-distant future. Anyway, for the moment, we must digress, because the fourth suggestion for this week comes from another podcast another sporting one in fact, called 100% Sports Podcast, whose description reads, quote, Two cousins who love talking everything sports in the motor city and nationwide. Think stats, anecdotes, personalities, the latest sporting gossip, and all very much in an American context. For one of their presenters it was, who wrote and said, I liked Vegas. I was very keen to point out that I should really mention not just the strip in Vegas, the new bit, but also Old Vegas, Fremont Street. Don't go and miss either of them. If you go, make sure you go to both. OK, so that's good advice. I tried to think what I know about Las Vegas, and I came up with only two phrases. One was Neon City, and one was Sin City. And when I looked it up in The Lonely Planet, this is what they had to say. There's nowhere like Vegas, baby. Come here to marry a stranger, gamble your life savings away, or just lap up the glorious oddness and kitsch of the whole place. Okay, so definitely a contrast to, I think, actually anywhere we've covered so far. But why not? So, I took care to follow the advice I was given, and look first at the Strip, and then secondly at Fremont Street. So, the Strip then. Possibly one of the most famous two-mile stretches of road in the world. Somewhere where you can see recreations of famous places from Europe. You can, for example, see the Venetian Hotel, which is a themed shopping arcade, but built to resemble Venice, complete with blue skies, canals, gondoliers, the Rialto Bridge, the Bridge of Sighs. It's all there. When you've been there, done that, you can go to Paris Las Vegas, which has a scale model of the Eiffel Tower and a full recreation of the Paris Opera House. You can go on the Eiffel Tower experience, which will take you 46 floors up above the city streets, to an observation deck where you can look round 360 degrees. Presumably you get a different view from that at the top of the Eiffel Tower. You can wander past Caesar's Palace, another massive entertainment complex. The concert hall next door is called, wouldn't you know it, the Colosseum. There's the Luxor Hotel on an ancient Egyptian theme, the thing shaped like a pyramid, massive sphinx proudly gazing out over the street. Quite a lot of free entertainment, so the Bellagio Resort, for example... It's really a fancy hotel complex, but it's known for what is often described as the best free attraction in Las Vegas, which is 
a huge display of lit-up dancing fountains, all set to music. OK, so that's the strip. Then there's Fremont Street. Slightly older, slightly smaller, but described on one website I looked at in the following terms. Fun people, crazy people, partying, gambling, drinking, street performers, free music and light shows, zip lining, and just having a good time. That's what you expect at Fremont. So it doesn't sound ever so low-key. And then continuing that quotation, a five-block section of Fremont Street is covered over with a canopy of LED lights that illuminate the sky in a spectacle of different colours and designs as you walk below. If you're not completely exhausted and dazzled by all the excitement, then another good thing to do is find time to go out to the relatively nearby Grand Canyon National Park. There are all sorts of ways to get there. My favourite one read as follows. Some combo options include a helicopter ride to the canyon's west rim, a boat ride on the Colorado River, and the chance to walk out on the glass-bottom Grand Canyon Skywalk. And just as a final thought, if you really must go to a museum when there are all those other things on offer, then two which I picked out which sounded rather Las Vegas were the Neon Museum and the Mob Museum, the latter being the National Museum of Organised Crime and Law Enforcement which promises to tell you the history of the mob in America through, quote, engaging interactive displays and video clips. So, for a fifth suggestion, how to follow that, I decided to go for the complete opposite end of the scale and include a little excerpt on England's smallest city, the beautiful city of Wells in Somerset, here in the UK, 12,000 inhabitants, and less than an hour's drive from Bath somewhere that's a more obvious city break venue. So Wells is believed to owe its existence to the hot springs that bubble up there. You can still see them today in the garden of the Bishop's Palace. The Romans knew they were there, so they settled round about. And it's been inhabited ever since. Most famous for its cathedral, which I've seen described as the most poetic of the English cathedrals. It's got a magnificent west front with a huge gallery of medieval sculptures well-known for its stained glass, especially the Jesse window, and for its famous clock outside. One of those ancient clock mechanisms that people gather underneath at quarter of an hour intervals to watch some little puppets strutting round. So yes, being England's smallest city, you're not going to be there for days on end, but the cathedral is one not-to-be-missed building, and the other one is the Bishop's Palace, more or less next door built for the bishop, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, that is, over 800 years ago. He got permission from the king to build himself a splendid home, and it was duly done. Fortified palace went up with a great hall in it, the bishop's private chapel, surrounded by 14 acres of gardens, and, bizarrely really for a church building, a moat all the way round with an imposing gatehouse, portcullis, strawbridge, the lot. A stroll round the moat is a definite must-do, And the other thing you really shouldn't miss is on the other side of the cathedral from the Bishop's Palace, and that's a road called Vicar's Close, believed to be the only complete medieval street left in England. A street of houses built originally for the Vicar's Choral, the men who sang daily worship in the cathedral, a tradition which, believe it or not, still continues right up till today. The houses date from the 14th century. Their chimneys, which are quite spectacular, were added in the 15th century. Originally there were 42 of these houses up both sides of the cobbled street, 
one for each vicar who sang in the choir. But then the Reformation came along. Rules were changed, vicars were allowed to marry, some of them did so, and so some of the buildings were combined to make bigger houses, presumably big enough for wives and children. So today, in the close, there are 27 houses. There's also a chapel right at the end, a library and a treasury. The whole thing, grade one listed, and still part of the cathedral and the adjoining cathedral school. So all the 12 singers of the Vicar's Choral have houses in this street, as do the organists and the vergers. I think teachers from the school live in some of the remaining houses. So all in all, Wells is a little jewel of a city, just right for a night or two. Or a bit longer if you want to visit some of the other things in the area, Cheddar Gorge, for example, or Glastonbury Tor, both only a very few miles away. It's very English, it's rather old-fashioned, it has a lovely farmer's market every Wednesday, and a magnificent collection of pubs and little cafes and restaurants. I recommend, but Vegas it ain't. So, that brings me to the end of today's five ideas. I hope you found one or more of interest. I'm hoping there'll be another City Break Ideas episode in two weeks' time. And for that, I really could do with some more ideas. So if you have one, somewhere that you've been and really enjoyed, or somewhere that you've always wanted to go, do write in, tell me where it is, perhaps with a sentence or two of justification, what is it about that place that attracts you and that you think others would enjoy, and then I'll work that up into one of the ideas for the episode in a fortnight's time. Just a reminder then, three different ways to send ideas in. You can add them to the blog on the website, which is www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk. Alternatively, we have an email address, citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk. And thirdly, you can contact us via Twitter using at citybreakscast. I hope very much that if you're sitting there thinking, oh, this or that would be a good idea, why don't they feature that? I hope that you'll write in and say that, and that will prompt us to do exactly that. So that really does bring us to the end for today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you might be able to join me next week when I'm planning to do another one of the virtual visit series. Next week we're going on a virtual visit to Seville. And I've even learned how to say, see you next week in Spanish, just to whet the appetite for a trip to Andalusia. So I'll sign off by saying, hasta la próxima semana. Until next week, goodbye, or if you prefer, adios. (laughs) 